Are we on? Oh, great. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Red Risks Live. And uh, today is a really interesting day for me, and my guest today is John Levy. I was super hyped. Uh, I am still super hyped to be interviewing John Levy. He's, um, he's very well known in the social media circles. He's been interviewed by Dave Asprey, um, Joe DeSena, Lewis Howes, just to name but a few, name dropping there. But who exactly is John Levy? Let me give you a quick video into John's background and enlighten you as to what his experiences are. Run VT. John Levy is a behavioral scientist and New York Times best-selling author known for his work in human connection, trust and influence. John specializes in applying the latest research to transform the ways companies approach marketing, sales, consumer engagement and culture. His clients range from Fortune 500 brands to startups. John is the author of the New York Times bestseller, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. In it, John explores how our ability to impact anything from longevity and business to social causes are a byproduct of our relationships, trust and a sense of belonging. In his free time, John works on outrageous projects, among them spending a year traveling to all seven continents or to the world's greatest events like the Grand Prix, Art Basel, Burning Man, Running of the Bulls, etc., and barely surviving to tell the tale. Welcome to the show, John Levy. John, thanks for having me. This is so fun. <laughs> How are you, John? So nice to see you. Are you keeping well? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm finally getting to take a little bit of time off and uh, and relax after months and months of writing and promoting. So this is yeah. Nice. You're in New York, aren't you? Uh, right now, I'm. I live in New York year round, but right now I'm actually in Denver, uh, oh, visiting right. some friends and getting to yeah. relax. Well, look, I'm I'm super excited to uh, interview you. I, I looked into some of the videos that you've done. And uh, I, was, I was amazed, you've done so many, I mean, with people like Dave Asprey, Bulletproof, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, Joe DeSena, Spartan Man himself, and uh, Lewis Howes. So I'm, I'm actually honored to have you on our little show. Thank you so much for, uh, well, uh, sharing. How can I resist the offer? Are you kidding? <laughs> and any place I can have some fun is where I'll show up. Well, let's have some fun. Let's have a bit of a, like an English pub type conversation about, the topic today, which is the science of connection, trust, and belonging. Now, when I reached out to you, and I and I knew you were doing the book, you're invited, and uh, I hope that's going really well. From what I'm seeing, the sales are, are skyrocketing, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I was incredibly pleasantly surprised. Uh, I mean, tens of thousands of copies have sold, which, like during a pandemic, is pretty pretty wild. It's nice yeah. to know that people can still read. <laughs> not just watch like seven second clips on TikTok, because frankly, I'm not a very good dancer. Uh, so that wasn't going to be much of an option for promotion or career. Yeah. Well, I know Joe, Joe DeSena from Spartan is, uh, was talking about your book and he raved it very, very much. And that's, that's high accolade. Um, so look, connection, trust and belonging. Let me, let me put a placeholder as to why excited me to talk to you about this and um, a little bit about our background and what we do. So we're, we're sort of in the risk management safety sort of discipline. And it's always good to talk to people from a behavioral 
science background or psychology background. Because the holy grail for all of us in this is to try and get to a point where we don't hurt people, we reduce risks and all of those wonderful things, you know, the utopian things. When I saw the title about connection, trust and belonging back in 2019 or yeah, it must be 2020, God time flies. I read a book by Daniel Coyle, uh, The Culture Code. And it really, yeah, phenomenal. It really, it stirred something in me to the point where I was thinking, as a risk professional, one thing we don't talk about, we talk about all the stuff and we keep talking about all the stuff related to psychology and everything else, but we don't talk about belonging. And it was interesting that the pandemic came along in a bad way, but in a good way, made us all closer, made us all more united and made us more uh, aware of the things that we're doing. So belonging cues were really, I thought, important. And we've continued that throughout 2020 with the stream team and into 2021 with the stream team. The stream team are a group of people that we've collected doing all of this for free, volunteering and sharing our knowledge. So let me ask you, when it comes to belonging, connection and trust, that was my placeholder. Maybe you can set the scene for us and we can dive into some of the deeper conversations. Sure. So uh, Coyle's book, first of all, brilliant. I highly recommend it. Uh, and uh, he really looks at how do we create culture from a, uh, like if you're running a company or a sports team or something. I think that culture is this very uh, difficult thing to nail down, right? Um, but I was really trying to understand is, as an individual, what is it that will define my ability to succeed at anything I can right? If it's business success or it's a social cause, or maybe it's just getting myself to go to the gym mm. <laughs> because I don't want to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, and when I really started looking at this, I realized that our influence, our ability to have an impact on a person or an outcome is defined by who we're connected to. Because if we're not connected to somebody, it's really hard to influence how much they trust us. Because if somebody doesn't trust me, they're not going to opt in or be influenced. And then the sense of community that we share. Now, there's some overlap between culture and community, but you'll notice this, that when a group is tightly knit, when people feel connected to one another at scale, then that community has a greater ability to produce an impact. And if you're really integrated and part of it, then that increases your influence. And so I wanted to understand, okay, it seems that the basic elements of, of success, whether it's company stock value, employee sick days and profitabilities can be tracked at levels of trust, or the greatest predictor of team success is psychological safety, mm. the idea that you can speak freely without judgment or being pushed out of the group, or that the greatest predictor of human longevity is our social ties. Mm. We live a long time, not from like ale cleanse, but because we have meaningful relationship mm. and what's the science behind it but don't mm. we realize that we're doing that doesn't work and what could we be doing that would just make us far more effective mm. and that's what mm. the book explains well it's interesting you mentioned psychological safety which is the the in an organization the um the feeling you can speak out without fear of reprisal without fear fear of uh, being blamed for things We've had a, quite a few guests on the show in the past, um, uh, Tim Clark, Dr. Tim Clark, 
Professor Scott Geller, who are, you know, in their own right, worldwide authorities in terms of psychology and behavioral sciences. I'm sure you you know them as well. Um, so psychological safety is sort of gaining some momentum and some ground at the moment, specifically in my sphere, my line of work. But how do we create an environment, be it an organization or be it in a culture where we can create that belonging and at the same time create that environment of feeling safe mm -hmm. when you speak out? That's a tough ask, isn't it? Oh, I think it's super tough. I think it's super tough for a few reasons. One is that um, psychological safety has a benefit to itself, right? Which is that people aren't anxious constantly. Like we've all had probably a boss at some point where we're so scared to say the wrong thing that we just shut up completely and it makes it miserable to work there and we're just looking for any opportunity to leave the company. Mm. But it's not just feeling safe that actually makes us effective. The reason that psychological safety works is that then diversity actually makes a difference. Then, because the, the culture you grew up in and the culture I grew up in are different from each other. And so the benefit isn't that you have a great accent and I have like a bland American accent. The benefit is that you bring a perspective that I don't. And if you don't feel safe enough to share it, it really doesn't matter. And then what we're going to end up with is worse ideas if everybody thinks the same way or is too scared to speak. So the real benefit of psychological safety is what Shane Snow would describe as cognitive friction. This idea is that ideas and perspectives can rub up against each other. And like metal rubbing up against metal, you get something sharper. You get something more refined. Now, in order to create it, it's really difficult, right? And what makes it more difficult is almost everything we do to build trust is either wrong or backwards. Can I give you an example? Mm. Okay. So uh, here's a, a fun one. What do companies do to try to win your business, right? Like you probably get phone calls from companies and they'll say things like, can we take you out for a dinner, mm. right? Or come to our party and then they'll give you a swag bag that you really just throw out. I know that, yeah, like exactly. And that actually works, right? The dinners are super awkward. The parties, you don't even remember it was them and you've just thrown out their token of appreciation. So how, how important? Well, you can't really win people over with gifts. There is a, one exception, which is, is there something you're like a super fan of? Is it like Harry Potter or something? I don't know how you Brits are. Well. Doctor Who? Well, I, I don't. I, I'm thinking now in my head, what, what, would, what would float the boat? You know, what would make people excited in terms of saying, God, oh, I really, I, I remember that person because of that gift. Okay. Yes. We, we tend to have anchor, don't we? Anchor things, certainly my mind vault, I tend to anchor things in a certain way. So if I go to someone and they give me a gift, swag bag or whatever, if it's something useful in there, great. For example, I remember working for an oil and gas company and um, they gave me a Fitbit when Fitbits first came out. Mm -hmm. Now, at that time, Fitbits were expensive, but the fact that they gave me a Fitbit made me then start to get a bit more involved in looking at my steps and gauging those things. 
the company had an ulterior motive and that is they didn't want people to be sedentary they wanted people to get away from the desk and do a bit more walking around and so on but i remembered that and i, and I thought that's such a nice gesture uh, okay there's some hidden stealth behind it but mm -hmm. i still liked it now I'm wondering what is there out there right now where we can say, well, this is a great thing to give to someone to get that connection, trust, and belonging. Here's here's the interesting thing. It's really tough. There are companies that do a, a great job at figuring this out. The reason it's tough is that gifting tends not to work at scale. So if I know you're a Harry Potter fan and I get you a first edition signed, you're yeah. like, wow, John, you clearly care about this. Yeah. Now there's a company called Giftology that does this really well. Yes. They work with people and they kind of turnkey solutions but what's really weird about human behavior is the exact opposite works better right and it's called the ikea effect yeah. and the ikea effect is that we disproportionately care about our ikea furniture because we had to assemble it yeah anything we put effort into we care about disproportionately well and let me just let me just park that up anything that we care disproportionately about no anything we put effort into right we care about disproportionately interesting okay it's uh do you have any children yes i do yeah okay. they're growing up though but you'll know this we don't care about our children despite the fact that they're a pain in the butt mm. but because of it it's the late nights when they weren't feeling well that we stayed up Ooh, with yeah, them yeah, and the yeah, homework yeah. and yeah. the worrying and that's what actually gets us to care about people yeah is yeah. that we invest effort into one another yeah the fact is that human beings we're not the fastest or the strongest we survived because we work together and that's a byproduct of shared effort. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, for years I've been running the secret dining experience. Yes. Tell us uh, about that. That's a fascinating uh, program you've got. Thank you. So it started when I was 28 and, uh, or maybe closer to 29. And we invite 12 people at a time. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody does. It's a little game we play. And they find out that they're sitting with the editor-in-chief of a popular magazine, a Nobel laureate, or a president or CEO of a you know, Fortune 500 company, a celebrity and Grammy award-winning musician, an Oscar winner. And I've hosted over 2,000 people at 227 dinners in 10 cities. Wow. In and you're still looking in good shape, all that food. <laughs> all those tacos and burritos. <laughs> uh, now, here's what's really interesting, though. The, People have tried to host dinners with fancy people, but they never have the longevity or the, the level of connection that people walk out of there. And that's because it's not about the dinner, it's about the cooking together. You see, as people cook together, it, uh, it causes them to invest effort into one another and care more about the relationship. Mm -hmm. now, yeah, that's fascinating. You just reminded me of an expression we have in my family, which is, a family that eats together stays together. Mm -hmm. So you are right in the sense that when people put effort into something, they they own it, don't they? Yeah, they feel ownership of it. They feel mm. invested. Mm. Is that is that what creates values then? That's a good question. I I think values are a really complex characteristic of human beings. Uh, part of it, I would argue for sure, because it would explain that if somebody grew up in a different culture and religion and they invested effort into it and it became part of their thinking patterns, they would have different values. Hmm. Um, hmm. But I also never really looked at the research, to be honest. Hmm. Um, interesting. 
Well, John, you know, we have, we have um, sorry to interrupt you there, just to say we have a scrolling text on the side of people live chatting. And I want to get involved with the people on live chat as well. So forgive okay. me if I cut across you. It's just to no, bring no, in. No, please, please. Let's get people's questions answered. Right. So we've got a question from Vince here. He says, uh, Vince, hi, Vince, by the way. Nice to see you. Also, quick shout out to Nat. Nat, hi, Jeanette. Uh, Vince says, psychological safety in this context is accessible to maybe 0.1% of the global workforce. What's the plan for the other 99.9%? Vince always asks good questions. Vince, I think you ask a really important question, right? Uh, which is that there's a very large percentage of the global workforce that's incredibly vulnerable. That there's not necessary legislation either to protect them or the corporations have this attitude that their employees are dispensable and thereby there is no psychological safety, right? If you're an Uber uh, driver, you have no guarantees for your income. And that's really concerning. Um, I'm not sure I have a clear answer because for problems that are that big, there's never just one answer, right? It's going to be a conglomerate of everything from legislation to companies, frankly, realizing that you can burn out employees, but that doesn't create long-term value for the company. Right? Companies that keep firing 5,000 employees to meet quarterly revenue projections have a really tough time creating an environment where people feel safe to work there. And as a byproduct, it makes it more appealing to work elsewhere, where mm. there is more psychological safety. Mm. I think what we're going to see more and more in the coming decades is people realizing that shareholder value, this idea that a company's pure obligation is just to maximize shareholder value, is intrinsically tied to the employees feeling safe and wanting to produce and feeling like they're part of a culture uh, that's interesting and engaging and that they mm. want to belong to. And mm -hmm. so I think the first step is having leadership across these organizations realize that uh, they need board buy-in uh, for creating greater levels of psychological safety and employee uh, value in order for them to, uh, to actually accomplish what they need. And yeah, I'll be yeah. honest, I, I think one of the big things we're going to see now is that with people working remotely so much, and feeling even more disconnected from the brand or company, that it will be the organizations that really create a sense of belonging and psychological safety that retain mm. talent. Mm. Otherwise, it becomes really easy to jump for a few thousand dollars. Well, you, you, you've got, uh, I don't know who this is. Sometimes we see names, but I, it might be Jay or somebody says the IKEA effect. I like that concept. I think uh, I do as well. Let's talk about the segregation aspects. Let's touch upon that. And I want to talk about the Allen curve, if you, if you can. As we start to work more from home, tell us about the Allen curve and, ha and how that's going to impact this connection, trust, and belonging. How's it going to impact it? Oh, for sure. So uh, the research was originally done, I believe, the 1970s, uh, but has then been repeated since. And what the Allen curve has shown is that uh, you can actually track how much people communicate based on how close or far their desks are. Uh, and our communication grows exponentially the closer mm. our desks are. So if we're mm. sitting next to each other, we'll talk a lot, but not only in person, we'll also text more and we'll also email more. Just communication flows significantly more often because you know once somebody's out of sight, they're out of mind. 
when your desk gets about 50 meters away, it might as well, you know, you might as well be working from completely different locations. Mm-hmm. And so the issue that we're facing is that as people become more distant from one another, then we don't think about each other. And then it doesn't occur to us to make cross-divisional or group connections. If you're working as part of a team and you only see the same five people over Zoom all the time, you'll have no real relationship to the broader company, the opportunities, uh, the cross-pollination, sharing of ideas. And then on top of it, it's going to be really hard to get promoted if you're not around your boss or the person who does your evaluation consistently. Uh, And that's for a few reasons. One is that, once again, out of sight, out of mind. And two, especially if you're new, it's really hard to get mentoring and guidance when you just have a quarterly review or something. So when you're, you can have hallway conversations or you can debrief after a meeting and you can be pulled aside for a second, you'll get consistent feedback. And so you'll be able to improve your social skills or your presentation skills or these quote unquote soft skills. That's really hard at distance. Mm-hmm. Well, well, soft skills are, are, I've seen people's soft skills grow exponentially over the last year and a half, some for the good and some for the bad. I mean, if you look on social media, I mean, the recent recent situation now in, in the UK is post-football fever. We can see the impact of social media for the good and the bad, you know, the yin and the yang. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right that in the sense that if we have people working from home more, I don't know how people are going to connect. You know, I mean, there are there are organizations currently looking at VI. Uh, technology where you can create a cyber office in their little home, right? So it's almost as if they sat next to a desk that they'd be sitting to they were physically in that office. Look, this is all space age stuff, all right? And and it might happen in the next five years and we might be out of all this pandemic relevance. my general view on this, if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is eventually the technology will overcome anything I could ever imagine, right? 50 years from now, things are going to learn, look very different. Mm. But here's the fact of the matter. I don't want to be on Zoom for eight hours a day. The idea of having a virtual reality headset that's messing with my eyes, rendering things, latency, like, not pleasant. People don't like playing VR games for more than a few minutes. So that might be a really interesting solution. If we get to the contact lens, you know, Phase where there are no issues and all that, and no latency. Um, but what I think we kind of need to accept is that working at distance is possible, but it's not going to ever be the same. Mm-hmm. And expecting that we're going to make it the same is kind of just silly. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we need to do is learn to mitigate the negative aspects and really lean into the positive aspects. Mm-hmm. And well, there are certain positive aspects, right? There's a fact that you have a glimpse into, well, right now it's not my home, but my friend's home in a way that is, is very intimate. And if people's kids jump in on screen or their pets, suddenly you have a glimpse into their life that you would never have hmm. uh, in person. Hmm. Hmm. Right? Well, it's just not the same. Yeah. 
Now, Vince, Vince um, has got another question, and Vince asked this of quite a few of our guests, and I think it's an important one to put this to you. Vince says, just a bit of context for John from my 99.9% .9 question. ILO report says 2.78 million workers are killed, 374 million workers injured in just 2020. No idea how many, how many suffering work cause diseases, that's easily a billion. Now, I think Vince's question is important because are we actually moving the needle in the right direction? You know, if we, if we look at all the statistics, catastrophic events and all those things, we're now in a situation where if you follow the Allen curve theory, we're going to be further away from people and uh, influencing factors, relationships building, et cetera. What's gonna happen to that then? So I think that there's two important factors we really need to consider. One is, uh, kind of associated to the Allen curve. When uh, I think it was a research study out of Brigham Young looked at human longevity and asked, what are the greatest predictors of you living a long time? And, you know, it's tempting to think happiness and things like that. They aren't. Uh, it's also tempting to think that, like, supplement that your friend swears by or that kale cleanse that you've got to do is going to make any difference, and it probably doesn't. Uh, the greatest predictors and this is after genetics because we currently can't edit our genetics in a meaningful way. Uh, number two is strong social ties, so close friends, family, right? Number one is social integration, which mm -hmm. is this idea that you're kind of part of a community. It's measured by the number of people you come in contact with. So there's a few possibilities of what we could be moving forward. Mm -hmm. First of all, we need to realize that I think the estimate for America is only 20% of workforce could even do remote mode, right? Mm -hmm. So overwhelmingly, if you're a bank teller or you're a uh, bus driver, you still got to go to work. So we're talking mostly knowledge workers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and 20% isn't a small number, but yeah. it's also not the majority, right? No. So, no. Um, the second uh, thing to consider is that we might just be looking for community in different places. So whereas most people may have met their, maybe not most, but a lot of people met their spouse at work or through friends, we might focus on more of like a nearby, near distance social interaction, right? Mm -hmm. And really look at community in, in either co-working spaces or, you know, private member clubs like Soho House or whatever it is. The, mm -hmm. I, I think your wall is falling behind you. My wall is falling, never <laughs> mind. Story of my uh, life. <laughs> So I, I bring this up uh, to, to kind of point to this issue of we need human connection. Some people are saying, okay, I'm going to get that with my social circle. I'm going to get that from my children's school and be on the PTA, but spend more time nearby rather than an hour and a half commuting. I get it. Like It, it makes sense for you as the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm really concerned about, frankly, is that Human connection is kind of the great predictor of everything. Hmm. And at least in America, we're getting lonelier than ever. In 1985, the average American had just about three friends besides family. Wow. In 2004, less than a generation later, we were down to two. We lost a third of our social ties in, a, in less than a generation. And due to the pandemic, that's probably even smaller. And that's What's the reason for that, John? Uh, I think the the real 
thing that is because this is pre-internet, right? Like 2004 is pre-modern internet. The internet existed. Uh, it's the real culprit is people moving for work because every time we move, it resets our social ties. And so the more mobile we become and the more willing we are to relocate, the harder it is to maintain relationships. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, while people were locked in their house, it became more acceptable to have like a weekly family Zoom or a graduation get together. That was a consistent basis. But now as people are more vaccinated and spending less time at home, Mm. then, you know, I missed my family Zoom to be on a flight. Mm. Well, let's... Let's take this into a direction now before my wall falls down anymore, is into where we can then say, let's talk about belonging, okay? We are on a mission to create belonging. Mm. How, do we, how do we go about that? What, is, what, are the, what are the nuggets that we can use to create that belonging culture or belonging values? Super interesting and super important. The first is to realize that belonging isn't a byproduct of networking. People need to connect somehow, but overwhelmingly people hate networking and it makes them feel dirty and unhappy. Right? What we don't feel dirty about, based on research by Francesca Gino, is making friends. Mm. And friends tend to be made over shared interests, activities, culture. Right? So the first thing is, let's find something that people can have a common ground around. And then let's figure out a way to get people to invest shared effort. So we have that IKEA effect. Accelerate the trust process. Then we need consistency. Right? Let's just use religions as an example. Um, whatever your religion is, it usually has some kind of weekly main get-together that gets people there week after week because it's hard to be part of a culture that only happens once. Mm-hmm. I think religion is an interesting one, though. I mean, a lot of the issues nowadays are because of religious issues, aren't they? I mean, you can't... Uh, religion is like a tribe, okay? Mm-hmm. If you are in tribe A and you're not in tribe A, you can have lots of issues, okay? You're not not part of that gang. I, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole with this conversation, but do you know what I'm saying in terms of the fact that I, I find there's a lot of things. Uh, look, let, let's, let me put it into context, a personal journey and a personal experience I want to share with you mm-hmm. and, the, and the watchers out there. When I wanted to do what we're doing now, two, three years ago, it was a disaster. I wanted to create a process whereby people can come and watch people like yourself, lots of world-class experts, and learn. But I was driven by numbers, you know? Like everybody, it was like lemmings off a cliff. I wanted to get numbers in terms of watches. When we started, before we started the show in the green room, I said to you, John, we may not get many people watching. And you said, doesn't matter. Let's just have a conversation. And I like that. I really like that. So when I switched off from that, and I really have a big, debt of thanks to uh, Scott Geller. We talked about Maslow's triangle and he introduced me, Abraham Maslow passed away in 1975. He introduced me to the next level of Maslow's triangle, which goes from self-actualization to self-transcendence. Mm-hmm. And that started me on a journey of what I call Ikigai. And that is to start saying, 
I really don't want the numbers anymore. I want to create a sense of belonging, you know. Come and watch John, come and watch all the others because you'll learn. And we're not going to charge you a penny for it because knowledge, should, gifted knowledge should be, should be available. What I'm trying to say is that I had to go through a mental detuning of saying, if you really want to make a change, switch off from the normal commercial attitudes and try and do something from the heart. Is that... Is that what you do with your influence? Because I know you you have oh, your guy. So uh, I can answer this in two ways. One is, yes, we don't charge anybody anything. My objective is just to meet interesting people and connect with them. Uh, most of the people who attend have zero business use case for me, right? Like I'm not, I do, I make my money by consulting and doing talks and I'm not going to consult with a Olympic gold medalist in curling or... <laughs> Hey, right, like the world's foremost expert on venoms. Like it's just not like there's no business there for me. So I I occasionally get business through the community, but it's not the intention of it. Uh I think what you're pointing to is something super interesting. And this came out of uh something called the Trust Project from mm. uh University of Chicago, led by um Kent Grayson. And brilliant minds come together to really understand trust. And what he ended up kind of discovering is that trust is made of three pillars, right? We create trust through shared effort and vulnerability and a few other kind of triggers. But what trust is actually made of, the stuff of it, is three pillars, which are competence, your ability to do a task, honesty, the fact that you're truthful about something, you have integrity. And the third is benevolence, that you have other people's best interests at heart. Now, what's really interesting about these three pillars is they're not equally weighted. In fact, they interact in interesting ways. And I'll give you an example. So let's say one of your coworkers is doing a presentation and it bombs. It's just awful. They're usually really good. Do you say, they're incompetent, I can't trust them? Or do you say, oh, they were having an off day? Me personally, I wouldn't want to destroy them. You know, I, I, I would like to be constructive in my feedback. So, and I, and I don't mean I'm trying to be sarcastic or cynical. I would actually offer them constructive feedback and say, yeah. look, you've done 10 of these, so you've bummed out on one of them. Don't worry about it, okay? Next time it'd be better. Look, my yeah. thing falling in the back, okay? My wife will be watching this and be saying, I told you that would work like that, okay? But... That's good feedback because next time I'll be saying, well, I'll put stronger glue up there or something, right? So I think you're pointing to something really interesting. Although competence is one of the pillars of trust, a breach in it isn't necessarily a big deal. Mm. But if you found out somebody was lying to you or lied to you about something, would you say, oh, it was a one-off or would you be a little concerned that other thing they've said maybe lies and things they say moving forward might be lies. Well, I, I, I look for frequency. I'm, I'm a mathematically orientated person. So if I, if I see the same characteristic time and time again, that would erode my trust. And we talk about connection, trust, and belonging. That would erode my trust in that individual. If that individual was in charge of a control room where there was going to be some sort of an emergency, I, I, I need to have trust in that individual to know that they're not sleeping in a locker room when that crisis happens. Yeah. 
So here's the interesting thing. You'll notice a breach in honesty is a bigger deal than a breach in confidence. Honesty mm. is down. But there's a weird loophole and it works like this. The two of us are walking down the street. Mm. And you say to me, John, I just need to pick something up from a friend's house. So, okay. And when we stop by your friend's house, 40 of my closest friends jump out and scream, surprise, happy birthday. Yeah. You technically just lied to me. But it would be really weird if I turned to you and said, you just lied to me. We can't be friends anymore. And that's because you did it for benevolent reasons. Mm. And if you'll notice, in general, human beings value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence. Mm -hmm. The weird thing about human beings is that they tend to lead with competence. Like, our server systems are up 99.999% of the time. That's great, and maybe some people who really like technicalities will get into it. But what matters to us is benevolence. So if the person said, you know, I, I know that for you and your clients, having your systems up is essential to maintain your reputation and be able to serve them. Hmm. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Hmm. I think, I don't mind white lies, little white lies, where I had a gotcha last week um, hmm. when... Uh, something was surprised onto me and it was quite embarrassing. I mean, this is not bad, but when you get a gotcha like that, it just, it just sort of, you don't know what to say afterwards. And I must thank Vince for putting up and showing that. But when, when someone gives you a gotcha, it can be a nasty gotcha, right? Or it can be a nice gotcha. Mm -hmm. Which, which would you like, John? Can you give me an example of a nasty gotcha? Right. So your your book, okay, that you've mm -hmm. got out, you're invited. Someone buys it, and you know we talk about Alan's curve, and we talk about connectivity and all those things. Some people are only two or three degrees away from you in terms of connectivity now. They could very easily reach out to you, give you a star rating about your book, which can be absolutely disgusting and nasty, okay? But you might have a thousand that are gray and that one that sticks out like an iceberg and you look at that. That's, yeah. that's a sort of a gotcha where you wake up and you see that and the rest of the day is poo-poo because you yes. think about that all day, right? In fact, you might even go to bed at night thinking about that one stupid comment that you've received. I mean, oh, I just sure. all my comments, yeah? So that's, that's a nasty gotcha, but a good gotcha. You've got a thousand good gotchas, but you, do you pay attention to those? So I, I'll be honest, I do. I pay attention to it. Let me rephrase. I occasionally go back to the book page, but I try not to read any of the reviews, just to be completely honest. Hmm. Uh, because human beings have loss aversion. We feel more pain from a loss and the pleasure from gaining that thing. And I'm well aware of it. And I'm well aware that some people won't like what I do, and that's fine. What I'm most concerned with is, uh, probably when it comes to the book and stuff like that, is according to Robert Cialdini, who you may have hosted, there's, uh, he did some research recently that there's an ideal band to be in between on, uh, on like Amazon ratings. And it's, I think, somewhere around like a, between a 4.5 or 4.6 and like a 4.8. Or yeah. four seven and anything above that it seems like there's just too many fake ratings to people anything below it you seem less competent right so it's if you notice that trust thing it's uh it, it's a battle between honesty and competence 
right? Is the good act book actually good? And are they telling the truth? Uh, and so I'm happy that like, at, a, at one point I was happy I got a couple of less than stellar ratings because it put me into the trust zone. Yeah. Which is yeah. like a really weird thing, right? It's like <laughs> hoping somebody will give me a four star or a three star, but like, it's what I was looking for. Well, let's get some more comments here. I'm embarrassed to put one of them up, but I will anyway, because I think it's, the, it's nice as connectivity. Um, so we've done that one. Vince says it's all getting worse by the way every year, which we understand. I talked about the stats there. Uh, Vince says the record on whistleblowing across the world for most of the big stuff is horrible and destructive for those speaking truth to power, getting the psychological safety at work is a monumental task. Absolutely. Little by little, you know, one discussion at a time, as someone that I know would say as well. Uh, this is the embarrassing one. I just skirt over this, but what he's saying there is that, John, you and I are almost cut from the same cloth in terms of what we have, uh, of what drives us, our ikigai, ikigai life and reason. We get out of bed in the morning because this motivates us. We don't do it because it generates a bag of money. It certainly doesn't. It costs a bag <laughs> of money. <laughs> but we do it because, well, I actually enjoy it, and I think you enjoy it as well. Uh, and Vince says, thanks, John Levy. This is truly wonderful. Articulating benevol benevolence in this context is priceless. Thank you. Now, you, I want to talk to you about one thing that is really important, and I think the timing is just right with COVID and everything in mind fun okay and i want to talk about what you talk about a lot which is the the novelty factor okay yeah tell us a little bit about the sn uh snvta yeah so um one of the things that's pretty consistent is that if you want to connect with people especially the higher profile pe people are uh you need to stand out right everybody's trying to get people's attention right now yeah i want to emphasize something it's easy to get people's attention you actually don't want that what you really want is their interest. In one case, it's like a car backfiring. You have somebody's attention for a second. Interest is, then when they come across that thing, are they actively seeking out more information? Do they want to connect? And there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA, the major novelty center of the brain. And it responds relative. John, can I stop you there? The um, acronyms are terrible in my line of work because People use them all the time. And I know you've done a few videos where you skirt past that, but let's just say BTA is uh, ventral tegmental area. It's a part of the dopamine in the brain, dopamine generating. And SN is the, is that the substantial nigra? Nigra, yeah. Okay. Where it's the, it's the, it's the reward center, isn't it? So it's all, it's all I'll got be to honest, do I am, uh, I'm not up to snuff on no, my don't worry, don't worry. I, I, My wife is super into this, so I get educated every day on stuff like this. But basically, it's the part of the brain which is the reward center and the dopamine center as well, in essence, isn't it? And so what's interesting is that uh, when it's triggered, it responds relative to how novel the thing is. So the more, yeah. it's, the more novel it is, the more it responds. Right. And it actually entices us explore and understand what it is we're coming in contact with. And the point to what you were just saying about the dopamine center and so on, when it's triggered, it activates the midbrain dopamine system, which is yeah. the part of the brain that's associated with uh, kind of like learning or neuroplasticity or creating new memories. And so when something is very novel or stands out, it actually causes us a desire to go and understand what it is 
Mm. And at the same time, it makes it more memorable. So we're storing the information better, mm. more effectively. Mm. So that... I look to connect, especially with high profile people. Right. I want to do something that just stands out in a really meaningful way so that, right. that it draws them in. Is that is that a thing about curiosity then? That curiosity fires the brain cells, fires the neurons, and therefore you you get excited. You know, it's that fight or flight thing. You don't know which way you go, and the adrenaline goes, the heart rate goes up, etc. So I think that that it's related. Curiosity is more associated with something called a uh, an information gap. So George Lowenstein, I think it was in the nineties developed this theory that everybody relates to curiosity as this really pleasant thing. But if you really look when you're curious, it's like there's an itch you just can't scratch. It doesn't actually feel that good. And so he reasoned that when there's a gap between what you know and what you're being presented with, if the gap is really small, right? So like you tell me your middle name, I go, okay, cool. And then we move on in the conversation. No curiosity is created. If it's really big, if suddenly somebody starts talking to you about some obscure thing in theoretical astrophysics that you have no experience around, then you're like, I think my wife's calling me. I got to run. Right? Like, I got to get out of here. It's kind of uncomfortable and if it's too big. But if it's big enough that it's interesting, but not so big that it's scary, so you feel like you can span it, curiosity kicked in, kicks in and your brain obsesses. And the classic example in my mind is the titles of BuzzFeed articles. Mm. So they know how to make clickbait. And probably in your world, it might be like the Daily Mail, right? Mm. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So they know that, that if they say like 27 uses for a banana and number 18 will blow your mind, your mind has never been blown by the 18th use for a banana, let's be honest. But it creates a gap big enough that it's interesting, but you feel like you can still span it. And so you've got that itch, and then it, that's why clickbait works. And so curiosity is similar to the response to novelty, but I think they have a slightly different mechanism. Hmm. I, I think it's a fascinating topic because when you talk about clickbait and you talk about infinite scrolling and Amazon, Amazon have got this nailed. You know, I mean, their, their algorithms. And when you talk about connection and trust and belonging, Amazon we all have, I would think nearly everyone on this planet has got an Amazon account, right? <laughs> so you belong with Amazon. Well, why do you belong with Amazon? Because they keep you connected with their stuff, right? So I, I would actually ask a slightly different question. Hmm. You use Amazon. I'm not sure you have an experience of belonging with Amazon. Now, I, I don't know. This, I'm not saying you do or you don't. I don't know what your experience is. Mine's grown over the last year and a half. I mean, I'm, I, I just hate going out of the house now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm just a, a house hermit. So I order it today. It's here tomorrow. I hate the cardboard that they send it in. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a small box and a big box and a bigger box, right? But the fact is, it's here. It's now. They've got the given... I have trust in knowing that they will send it to me and it will be here. I have trust in knowing that if I don't like it, I just hit the print label and it's back. Yep. I have trust in knowing that they will 
because I'm a prime customer, they will give me a reward and also say, don't return it because I had some bad media recently about going to landfill with all this rubbish, you know. So just keep the damn thing. And, oh, here's a five pound voucher. Right? So all let me, these- but here, here's what's interesting about it. You're a user. You're even a fan of the product. I'm not sure if you have the characteristics of high levels of belonging, like a community. Right? I agree with you there. Yeah, I, and, I, I, if, I, they would lose my trust immediately if I felt that they were in any way negligent or not ethical in some way because that's the sort of person I am. I don't want to be associated. My ordering would go less and less and less. Right? So I, I think that that's true to some degree. Asan Minaj, who you might know from, he had a show called Minority Report, uh, a really clever guy. He did an entire thing about the way that Amazon relates to their employees. It's an amazing company, but like, you know, there are certain kind of issues there. It's a big company. There always are. And his response was, I am much more lazy than I am woke, which is the, in the sense that like the convenience of Amazon is what we love. If another company that had better practices existed, you'd probably switch. Yes. Well, there are, but I haven't switched. There's eBay. Uh, there's uh, there's quite a few in the UK, but I haven't switched. So the the issue is that eBay actually provides a very different service. They don't have mm. two day shipping and the easy return and all that. There there's their value proposition. That, that is, is also different. true. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they have huge um, distribution chains, Amazon, compared to eBay. Yes. Yes, you're, so right. you're right. Just to give you a, a difference in in relationship, if Apple screwed up royally a few years back when all those celebrities' accounts were hacked and their personal photos mm. were released. Mm. That had zero effect on them. Yes. Because people have such an intimate relationship to the product. They consider it almost an extension of themselves. That's a brand that has serious sense of belonging. They mm. could release a mousetrap. People would <laughs> be like, Apple, mousetrap, count me in, I'll buy one. I don't even have mice in my area, right? Like, but... <laughs> That's the kind of belonging that they have, right? It extends to the far beyond any logical sense, and it's not convenient. They're not mm. battling on price. But does right? that mean that we as human beings are fickle then? Do we? Oh, do we, 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 we Dan Ariely, I think, said it best. We're predictably irrational. We, are, <laughs> we completely make no sense, but we consistently don't make sense in the same exact ways. And that's what's, I think, wonderful about us is that that we can actually become better by understanding where our trigger points are and then designing around them. Like, I'm not going to be able to affect your decision at the moment of decision because the temperature in the room is already making you annoyed and you're hungry from not eating. And like, you know, it's going to be hard. But I could set you up in a way so that when you do make the decision, you're doing it in your best interest. I can mm-hmm. say, oh, let's go after you've eaten so you're most open-minded and you can process things the best or you're best in the mornings, right? Mm-hmm. I can say, oh, let's uh, review the information with somebody that you really trust that's not going to be a high-pressure salesperson. Like, we can set up the decision-making process so that you can make the best decision at the time. Mm-hmm. Understanding that we are just fickle, ridiculous machine beings of some kind. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm data-driven. 
much to the annoyance of my family. I'm performance driven every day, fitness, yep. health, regimes, everything. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself more recently, for example, we've, we've in our family created this belonging, uh, this connection by getting a little bit more in tune with our health and well-being because it's very easy when you're cocooned to go gaga, you know, it really mm -hmm. is very easy. But if you have something that you can all gravitate towards and talk about, for example, how many steps did you do today? Oh, uh, why don't you uh, look at your stress level on your watch? We use techware to help us not only have a conversation, but also understand each other as well. Do you think that maybe understanding other people outside of a family environment is super critical then to create that belonging and trust? Oh, that's interesting. So generally, I relate to belonging as shared common ground, mm -hmm. right? It's you like to knit, I like to knit, obviously. And, uh, and so we get together, we're hanging out and knitting, we talk about yarn, and we feel really safe with one another, right? Macmillan and Chavez found that community has four characteristics. There's membership. People are on the inside and those on the outside. The two of us are on the inside in the knitting circle. Other, and we're not keeping people out. Like just other people don't necessarily want to knit. They want to go play football or, you know, build Raspberry Pi computers and things like that. The second characteristic is influence. So when I say influence, it's tempting to think, oh, an influencer. I'm talking, I have an impact on you. You have an impact on me, right? To use the religious example, it's not just that I listen to sermons, I can go and do volunteer work. Right? I have an impact. The third is uh, a essentially fulfillment and alignment of, of intention or needs. Right? So you're getting what you're looking to accomplish out of your participation. If you're part of a workers' union, then you know that the union will protect you. You have status as a byproduct of being in the group, and your interests are aligned. And the final is that there's a shared history or values, right? And understanding each other is great because you can completely disagree uh, on things, and it gives you a sense that of relatedness. And uh, have you ever read the book, Never Split the Difference? No, I haven't read that one. I've heard quite a few good things about that one. So uh, former F top FBI negotiator, right? He was uh, specialized in kidnappings, mm -hmm. uh, wrote it or co-wrote it. And what he talks about is that he empathizes with the criminals that he would uh, mm. negotiate with. And the reason is that he doesn't that doesn't mean he needs to agree with them you know in many cases they're performing terrorist acts of some kind it's not saying what they're doing is okay but it's the willingness to see their perspective so that you can associate and relate to them mm -hmm. and i think that that's very critical mm -hmm. but that doesn't it's not necessarily the same as feeling a sense of belonging mm -hmm. i can negotiate with somebody or even buy a cup of coffee at a coffee shop I can relate to that person, but we probably have no shared sense of belonging. 
mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. I recognize them from, you know, our knitting group. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the way I've heard about that is um, in the oil and gas uh, line of work, we get sent to some wonderful holiday locations, you know, and uh, as a part of that uh, wonderful location, we're given some training, which is called HET training, hostile environment uh, training. Mm. And what they train you, apart from how to deal with things blowing up and legs being blown up and stuff, is they talk about terrorist negotiations. And they always say that the best way to deal with it is to befriend the person who has kidnapped you and to try and understand why they've kidnapped you because their motives aren't necessarily always financially driven. Mm -hmm. It could be because they hate the company that you work for because some member of their family has been killed. So it's it's a very well-known approach that's applied in uh, companies where people go off to these uh, exotic uh, locations. It's interesting because it's, I think, only come into the cultural zeitgeist around these things in the past 30 years. Before that, the general approach was, we've got larger guns, give us the people back. Yeah, that's right. And it's completely yeah. not effective to threaten people that are especially mission driven, right? Yeah. So yeah. If, if you're coming in on some belief that you're setting right what was done wrong to you, it just causes people to dig their heels in deeper. Yeah. Yeah, I think gone are the days of uh, quick on the draw and all that stuff. I think um, when, you, when you think about, I mean, we can go down some dark conversations in this, but when you think about culture now and you take someone out of the social media environment and put them in a in a terrorist kidnapping situation they certainly aren't going to be able to tweet their way out of that one right or facebook their way out of that one they'd have to learn some different skills uh uh, quite quickly john as usual you know time has flown past and i could talk to you for hours and hours i think you have an incredible depth of uh, knowledge and also very articulate in the way you put things across as well just to just to sort of tidy up, I mean, we talk about connection, trust, and belonging. What would be John Levy's uh, top tip for getting those stitched together in a nice Venn diagram in the middle? Oh, interesting. Uh, so my biggest recommendation is actually, uh, or my biggest tip would be realize that we're doing just about everything backwards. People are trying to network when we should be looking at how do we become friends. People are trying to win others over with gifts rather than finding opportunities effort. Right? People are leading with competence rather than leading with benevolence. So overwhelmingly, when it comes to really creating deep and meaningful relationships, we've done a pretty bad job from a cultural perspective teaching those lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my big recommendation is to figure out how to safely bring people together, do it consistently. And foster a level of trust of the psychological environment. Um, And and here's what's interesting. People tout diversity as the greatest thing ever. Diversity of thinking, culture, all these things, it's difficult. And that's a good thing. The reason it's difficult is that when all of us think identically, it's really easy to agree on everything. When people have different perspectives, they push up against each other and it's uncomfortable. But that's what makes the ideas better and stronger. And that's why psychological safety is so important. Mm-hmm. So 
My biggest recommendation is find a way to bring people together so that they become friends and shepherds, hopefully from diverse backgrounds. Thank you. And do it consistently. And fundamentally, that'll have the biggest impact on your life, other than, you know, what people very, tend to think. Yeah, very articulately put. Um, Thank embrace, you. embrace, basically, yeah. Embrace others and accept their viewpoints rather than just uh, taking yours as the only one. John Levy, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. This has been and a I, pleasure. Thanks for having yeah, me on. Yeah, and I hope you come back on our little show sometime in the future. Um, and I wish you the very best of luck with your book. You deserve it. I think you're doing outstanding stuff out there with your Ikigai. And um, I'm very pleased that our Ikigais have uh, combined forces for this show. I'd just like to thank everybody out there who's watched and uh, look forward to the show next week with Lizzie Brenthal, Brenthal and Jeanette and Jorge will be hosting that show. But in the interim, I'm going to play out with the outro and just say, John Levy, thank you so much. Thank you. If you can stay behind, I'll have a chat with you in the green room. But other than that, catch up with you very soon. Take care, everyone. John, thank you. Bye for now. Thank you so much for stopping by and watching that live event. If you want to be notified of future live events, head over to our website. There's a form on there, hit the subscribe button and I'll update you whenever live events come up. I promise you, no spam. And finally, we do have a YouTube channel. It's just simply Red Risks. Please subscribe and help us. Let's connect, share and learn. Thanks.